Can somebody generate tongues on their own? Or can they learn it in a classroom setting? How do you explain tongues that show up in other religions? And why wasn't there a lot of speaking in tongues throughout most of church history? We're going to tackle all those questions today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a minister, and today I'm going to try to be the Bible answer man. (laughs) A little bit of a joke there. I think there used to be some radio show called that. But today is really just going to be about answering questions, okay? Just kind of doing feedback Um, going through some feedback and talking about some of the questions or even objections that some people might have to this idea that the gift of tongues is for today. That's what I've been talking about. I called this series Tongues for Today, and I've been talking about it every Monday here in this month of June. And so I don't know if you're listening to it right now or if you've found this down the road, but basically this is the fourth and final part in a little mini series I've been doing on the gift of tongues and spiritual gifts and talking about why I believe that they are for today. And so a lot of the stuff, I mean, this is part four. I've kind of covered all my all my bases, I think, except that some people did have some questions. They had some follow-up. They had some maybe even what you might call challenges or objections to the gift of tongues. And I wanted to kind of sort through some of those things today. And so thank you to everyone who just kind of left feedback. And, and I've already been answering feedback on this podcast. There was one guy, can't re- I think his name was Mike, and, and he wanted me to listen to this whole hour-long sermon. Uh, it was more than an hour, but talking about why the gift of tongues has ceased. He was what you would call a cessationist, and he wanted to convince me. He gave me a, a, a sermon with seven reasons why the gift of tongues was not for today. I listened to the whole thing. Mike, still waiting for you to to get back to me on that. I listened to the whole thing. I said, you know, rather than me just typing up seven responses to the seven reasons tongues have ceased, I didn't find any of them convincing. So I said, Mike, what was the most, what was the strongest one to you? What did you think was the strongest point for why tongues have ceased? And I want to deal with the strongest point first, and then we can go to the second strongest and maybe the third strongest. And if we can do that, then I don't feel like I have to go through all seven. But anyway, I tried to get him to tell me what was the strongest one, and he didn't have an answer for me. I don't think he had actually listened to the sermon himself. He was just a cessationist. He Googled something, and I sent it to me. Mike, if that's not the case, get back to me. What was the deal there? So anyway, that I really want to interact with some of the objections that are out there, though, to this gift of tongues, because a lot of Christians, I think, are just they're not walking in this power. They're not walking in this opportunity that the Holy Spirit has provided to us and I, and I want you to. So um, I want to, if there's some hurdles between you and the gift of tongues, if you have some hangups about it, I want to deal with those. Let's do that today. So I, wa- I was going to include this as part of last week's lesson, but last week's lesson w- went long enough. And I thought I'm just going to save these questions for, for its own thing. So common questions about tongues. Here's a question. Can you generate tongues on your own? And the answer to that question, no, I don't believe you can. I don't think there's a, a class you can take that teaches you tongues. Um, I don't. It's something that has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, some Christians teach, <laughs> this is kind of silly, 
they they teach you just got to start trying to just babble stuff and then eventually tongues are going to start flowing out of you um i don't i don't know i i know you you kind of got to work with it a little i mean you're if you're if you're trying to discover the gift of tongues if you're trying to do it for the first time it's understandable some some nonsense might just come out of your mouth but there's some christians who teach that you just got to start repeating certain phrases and if you do that boom the the gift of tongues is going to start flowing out of you no, it doesn't. You don't. You don't generate it on your own. To say, I bought a Kia. I should have bought a Honda. I bought a Kia. I should have bought a Honda. And they say, if you just repeat that enough times, it's like the the gift is just going to start flowing out of you. No, it only comes through the Holy Spirit. So that's the first answer right there. You can't generate tongues on your own. It's a supernatural thing. And I shared some of my story in last Monday's um, lesson. It was called receiving the gift. And you know, I talked about how I had tried to generate tongues on my own, not to fake it, but I was just trying to figure out how to do it. And it was just always, just like a couple of syllables just repeated. It was nothing, it didn't sound all that impressive. It just sounded, you know, annoying, if anything. Um, So I knew it wasn't real. Then when I actually did start praying in tongues for real, it was like its own language on its own. So it was definitely different for me. I could see a difference in me trying to generate it on my own versus when the Holy Spirit finally gave me the gift. So... Um, no, I do not believe it's something you can generate on your own. I don't think there's a code word or phrase that you just need to keep repeating in order to make it start flowing out of you. It just comes by the power of God. All right, we had several questions from somebody named Joanna, and I would like to include her questions here. She had sent this in response to my first episode on tongues. Um, I think this is, or maybe the second or third one. Anyway, I I think between all the episodes I've done so far, Joanna, I actually just think in the in the course of me trying to teach on this subject, I actually answered most of your questions. So I'm going to try to cover the rest of them here. Um, if there's something that you think I missed or if I didn't explain it well enough, just, you know, send me a message. Let me know. I'd be perfectly happy to, to receive that and keep dealing with this. Uh, but the, so the mailbag is always open. You find this podcast episode years down the road and want to send me a message. Hey, I'm st- if I'm still doing the podcast, I will still hop on here and talk to you about it. So Anyway, let me deal with some of the things that Joanna sent in. So she says, if the personal prayer language of tongues is the basic gift for every believer, as you say, this is something I said in episode one or two about this. She says, why would the Holy Spirit not give everyone that gift, even if that person did not pray for it? Okay, so let me deal with that. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit gives all of us gifts, whether someone's filled with the Spirit or not. Okay, like in Romans 12, it talks about Gifts of administration, gifts of encouraging, gifts of serving, gifts of giving. We all have spiritual gifts. And they they might not be what you'd call supernatural on the surface. It might be things that seem a little bit more uh, mundane or procedural or natural. Um, When I said that tongues is the basic gift, what I meant by that is I think it's the starting place if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is the baseline gift. God probably has a lot more ways that he wants to use somebody than just to have them speaking in tongues. If God fills someone with his spirit, he's empowering you to be a greater witness for him in the world. He might empower beyond tongues to to even prophesying, as 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. He might lead you to the working of miracles, like in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, or as Mark 16 says. He may speak to you a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom that then you are meant to share with somebody else and maybe even change their life. My point in saying all that is just to remind people, tongues is not the goal of the Christian life. It's not the goal of the spirit-filled Christian's life. 
that's just one step on the ladder. It's really like the bottom step. Once you get filled with the spirit starts with tongues. You have not arrived just because you speak in tongues. That's like the, just a stepping stone to what God wants to do. That's even beyond that. Okay. So I think God desires for his children to live a supernatural life that, and I think he wants that for every single one of us. And so tongues is just the first step. I think God has so much more for us. That's why I said tongues is kind of the basic thing. Another one of Joanna's questions, she says, it seems that everyone needs to be edified. And if I don't have the personal prayer language of tongues, how am I going to be edified by the Holy Spirit? So I'd say there's lots of ways, yeah, that we can be edified. We can be edified by preaching, by, you know, hearing a sermon. We can be edified by reading the word of God. We can be uh, praying for our own edification, even just praying in English or whatever your normal language is. That's a way of praying for, that's a way of being edified is praying for yourself. So tongues is just another way. What I like about tongues is that it's perfect (laughs) because it's the Holy Spirit supernaturally praying it through you. So as I've been talking about, I talked about this a lot last, I think I talk about this every time. I don't even know what I'm saying when I'm praying in tongues, but at a minimum, I could conclude that it's something perfect because it's the Holy Spirit praying it. So I'm sure whatever he's saying is, is going to be some good stuff <laughs> at a bare minimum. Um, whereas, you know, I can read the Bible and misunderstand. I could hear a sermon and the sermon could be wrong. Um, I could pray and maybe not be praying the best thing for me. But when I'm praying in tongues, I know that that's perfectly in God's will. So I feel a little bit of safety there. And that's why I think that, yeah, there's lots of ways we can be edified um, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, we, you know, we just want to seek the very best for our lives. And so that's one thing that tongues provides for us. Question again, uh, since the tongues that the Corinthian church is using seems to be different from the language of tongues on the day of Pentecost, how can it be considered a spiritual gift? Um, so I'm, I don't know if I was understanding this question. Like I, I was trying to understand this question correctly. Um, it's a spiritual gift, because 1 Corinthians calls it a spiritual gift. Uh, the Greek word for it is charismata. And I believe that's a word for, it's, I think it's actually grace gifts. Um, but the doctrine of spiritual gifts, I, let me say to, to, um, to, in response to that question, I actually, I really agree there is a, a bit of a distinction between the tongues on Pentecost and the spiritual gifts as they're talked about in other parts of, of the New Testament. Uh, I, I do think there's a difference. I actually, I don't use Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, as the model for how tongues are always supposed to operate. Because Acts 2 has a lot of things going on. You know, that's the day of Pentecost. The church is born. The room was shaking. Flames were appearing around the disciples. Even the tongues were different because in that situation, the tongues that people were speaking, they were just human languages. So there's a lot of things that are kind of unique about that whole, that moment. Yeah, as the, from the birth of the church. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 12, that's more talking about what I would call the normative use of the gift, which is what I'm describing as a personal prayer language, um, especially in chapter 14. I say it's personal because that's not for public edification. That's for personal edification. And I call it prayer because it's speaking to God. And I call it a language because that's what a tongue is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a language. But unlike the day of Pentecost, 1 Corinthians 14 says that one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So it's not necessarily a human language. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians 13 means when it talks about the tongues of angels, a language that's not even 
uh, from this world. And I think that's what's happening most of the time when someone is praying in a personal prayer language. Um, so I hope I answered that question all right. Uh, I hope I understood it right, because I'd had a little trouble understanding that question. I, but again, I call it a spiritual gift, because that's what 1 Corinthians calls it. Uh, I don't know if Acts even calls it anything. Um, I think the Greek word for tongues is glossalia, and it can have it can have different meanings based on the context that you're finding that word in. Okay, next one. Joanna says, I believe that God can do anything, give anyone any gift for any purpose, but why do Pentecostals say that what happened in Acts must happen today? Why can't the book of Acts be a descriptive book and not a prescriptive book? And I love this question because this is something I think about a lot. And, uh, and I say it should happen today because I think the Bible including the book of Acts, this is this is supposed to be a handbook for the Christian life. And especially what we find in the New Testament, it's a handbook for the, the, the life in the church. And so I don't think God gave us a list of stories that don't have direct application anymore. I don't think God gave us the New Testament just to basically say, hey, here's a list of exceptions. Here's a bunch of things that don't happen anymore. Well, if that was the case, it wouldn't be very useful to us. So I look at the book of Acts as something that God gave us so that he could teach us not not just a history lesson, but application for our lives today. And that's actually how all Christians really view the book of Acts, just to different degrees. Um, let me read a quote here. This is from one of my theology books. It says, Thus we seldom think of the Old Testament histories as setting biblical precedents for our own lives. On the other hand, this has been a normal way for Christians to read Acts. It not only tells us the history of the early church— but it also serves as the normative model for the church of all times. That's from a book by a Pentecostal theologian named Gordon Fee. He actually passed away last fall. He wrote a really great book about how to read the Bible. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I, I greatly recommend that book to anybody getting started in ministry. That book helped me so much early on on doing exegesis and, and teaching me what kind of questions to ask about the text. So I always recommend that book to people. And in this book, Gordon Fee has a whole chapter just on Acts. Because yes, Acts is a history book, but for reasons he stated, we read it a little bit differently than other history books of the Bible. And I mean, when I say we, I don't mean we Pentecostals. All Christians do. Pretty much every single church denomination uses Acts as a model for their church. You know, they say, well, in Acts, they did it X, Y, and Z way. So that's how we should do it. You know, we all do this to maybe not maybe not consistently, but we all do this to some degree with the book of Acts. And so that's I just tried I'm trying to be consistent, I guess. I look at Acts and I just try to say, well, okay, this is my model. Um, this is why God gave it to us. And I once preached a series to our youth group that was called Not Exceptions but Expectations. Because that's how I see Acts. It was a series about Acts. And that's how I see it is expectations for the church. That's not to say that Acts has the last word. I mean, the epistles, you got to bring those in too. They provide some context and some refinement for a lot of these things that we see going on in Acts. So in Acts, um, what I see is this pattern again and again that someone is filled with the Spirit, and either right then or at a later time, they speak in tongues. But then 1 Corinthians comes along, and that book provides some additional structure in how to operate in that gift. Just like in Acts, you know, we see deacons being instituted. We see some of their qualifications. But then Timothy and, and Titus come along, and they provide some more in-depth qualifications for what it means to be a deacon or a leader. So Acts kind of sets the pattern, 
But the other New Testament books expand on these things for us. So that's why I see Acts as prescriptive. Um, but I also keep the rest of the New Testament in mind as well. And I bring that to the table so that, you know, I'm looking at it holistically. Um, and and listen, I think pretty much every Christian denomination out there does that, um, whether they say that they do or not. But I think all of us use Acts as kind of a foundation for our own church practice. I mean, why do you go to church on Sunday? I, I'm pretty sure that comes from Acts. Uh, I don't think you—someone correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you get that from anywhere else in the New Testament. So I need to—I should Google that. But but anyway, I th- I'm pretty sure that it comes from Acts, that they got up on the first day of the week, and that was the Lord's Day, and they that's when they would gather for church. And we take that as um, normative. That's what, you know, our traditional practice in church. So, again, I just don't see an expiration date on the gifts of the Spirit— or an expiration date on anything that's in the New Testament. What I'm trying to do is just take what the Bible says, and and I don't think I take anything from the New Testament and kind of say, oh, that was just for back then. Well, unless the New Testament tells me it was just for back then, I don't just assume that any of it was. Because if I start doing that, that just seems kind of dangerous to me. Like, that seems it opens the floodgates to where I could just strike down anything I wanted to from Scripture. And so if we say 1 Corinthians 12... And 1 Corinthians 14, if we say those were just for 2,000 years ago, well, couldn't I also just throw out 1 Corinthians 13? That's the love chapter. Now, if we look at it contextually, that would make sense. If we're throwing out chapters 12 and 14, shouldn't we also throw out the chapter right in the middle of those? (laughs) Like, how can 13 mean anything if 12 and 14 have expired? So, but of course, we're not going to get rid of chapter 13. Everybody loves chapter 13. So I just, listen, I just think it's dangerous we start throwing chapters out. Um, I don't believe in tossing out anything in the New Testament. I don't toss out anything in the Old Testament unless the New Testament tells me to. So anyway, that's that's my perspective on how to read the Bible. And um, I hope I'm being consistent on that. If, you know, if someone is listening and they're like, well, what about this? What about that? Hey, challenge me on it. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm being incons- inconsistent in some way. But But my principle is that I just try to follow everything the Bible says. And so, again, Joanna, I hope I answered your questions um, between the past few episodes. I hope I have. And I thought you sent some really good questions. If I misunderstood anything that you said, or if you got a follow-up, or if you think I need more info, or if you want more info on something, if you want more scriptural support for something I said, please, please, please don't hesitate to reply. If anyone out there listening wants, you know, any of that, just let me know. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. That's my email. If you're if you're on YouTube, you can always leave a YouTube comment and happy to take questions from wherever wherever they come from. So if you got a question or or I put this on Rumble too, they do comments as well, and I see those. Okay, I'm gonna take a short break, I'm gonna get a drink, and then I've got a few more objections that I wanna deal with. If you are appreciating today's Bible study, um, you could leave your appreciation by sending a prayer uh, that more people would find it. Um, I would really, not sending a prayer to me, but (laughs) obviously sending it, but sending it to the one who takes prayers, and uh, I would really appreciate that. Um, Or if you want to leave a like or positive review, make sure you're subscribed. uh, It's amazing to me how many people listen to the podcast who are not even subscribed to me. I don't know how they get the episodes then, but they somehow do. So my stats come back and they show like half the people listening aren't subscribed. I'm like, how do you even see? Anyway, 
Make sure you're subscribed so then you always get the next one. What I'm hoping to do next time, as in next Monday, is finally get back into this book of Ezekiel that I've really neglected throughout the month of June. And so we need to get back into it and get going on that again, or else we're never going to finish Ezekiel. (laughs) So I plan to actually hit Ezekiel pretty hard in July. If you've been missing Ezekiel like I have, then you're going to get a double dose of it next month. So anyway, come back for that. And um, I don't know if I will continue to do the the Thursday episodes. I did Thursday episodes for the month of June, and it's kind of wore me out a little bit. And I'm kind of like trying to turn my attention to, okay, maybe spending a little extra family time and uh, having doing some more fun stuff with my summer. So I'm I don't think I'll do Thursday episodes for July. I might bring them back in August. And uh, anyway, that's kind of where all that is at. So. All right. Um, if you're subscribed, if that's all good, then I, here's here's one more thing. The thing that made me want to do this four-part series, which was supposed to be three parts, but the thing that made me really want to do this four-part series on tongues is that I saw a video posted a while back by Todd Frill. He's got the Wretched Radio and TV program, and he posted a video. It was like six challenges or questions to challenge Pentecostals who still feel that tongues are in operation today. And so I listened to his questions that he posted, and I thought they were all just really, really easy challenges to answer. And I'm kind of confused. I So I guess Todd Frill's a, a cessationist, and I'm really confused at why cessationists think that these are good points to bring out. So look, I like Todd Frill. I know he's a bit sarcastic. I don't line up with him theologically on a lot of things. Um, I've talked with him before on uh, on the radio. I found him very gracious and kind, both you know on the, the interview and behind the scenes. So he wrote this one book on stress, and I read this book, and uh, I found it very personally helpful. So I like Todd Frill. I think he's a brother in Christ, but we would disagree strongly when it comes to this issue of tongues. But I watched the video he posted. I was seeking to understand his position. I don't know if he's really seeking to understand mine, but I want to try to help him anyway. And so I want to play a clip of one of his challenges for you, and then I'm going to answer it, and we'll go through all of them today. So I'm going to play a clip of one of his challenges and then my response. All right, you charismatic. Put your gloves down. I do not intend to punch you in the nose. Instead, I want to genuinely, lovingly challenge you to defend your belief that Christians can speak in an ecstatic language that you call tongues. Now, after these initial six questions, I'm going to lay out a thesis statement on tongues you just might find compelling. But first, here are some questions for you to ponder. Scripture commands tongue speaking requires an interpreter. My question for you is, have you ever seen or heard an interpreter at a gathering when tongue speaking occurred consistently? Gifts are for the edification of the body. So if someone is merely speaking indiscernibly without an interpreter, then you should ask, hmm, is this really biblical? So this is like the easiest one out of all of them to answer. Yes, virtually every time I've ever heard someone use the public gift of tongues, Um, there has been an interpretation that followed up, all right? And I think I told a story a few episodes back, the one time that it didn't happen, and I I was leading the church that Sunday, and so I I take responsibility for that, that I just don't think I I left enough time. 
um, for someone to interpret. Cause someone came to me afterwards and said, Oh, I think I had the interpretation and, um, and she just never given it before. So she's a little intimidated to speak out. And so anyway, um, but there was an interpretation that time too. So every time I've been around where the gift of tongues was, was publicly proclaimed, there was an interpretation that followed. And, um, so yes, I've heard tongues interpretations. Next question. Number two, because spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body, building up of the saints. How does modern day glossolalia edify you as a disciple of Jesus? Be specific. Does it teach you more about the Lord? Does it teach you more about his word? Or does it leave you with just kind of an odd feeling like, whoa, the spirit, he's really present here. If speaking in tongues isn't interpreted and it cannot edify you cognitively, biblically, maybe it's not biblical. So how does praying in tongues edify me? Well, here's here's where this question comes from, I believe. It's 1 Corinthians 14.4, where it says, anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. This is Paul writing right there. And so as I've said a few times in this little series, I don't know what I'm saying when I'm praying for self-edification. I, I just know that's what it's doing. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14 also says, just a few verses before that, that when someone prays in tongues, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So I don't know what I'm saying. I'm not really supposed to. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God, not to men. And so I am a man. I'm not God. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm saying. But I would say it edifies me because Scripture says that it does. And it and I, I assume that means I'm praying blessings over my life. I'm praying to build up my spiritual self. And so um, that's that's how I would say it edifies me. I Here's a similar verse that I think of it, uh, with this is Hebrews 7.25, where it says he, and that's talking about Jesus, that he always lives to make intercession for, for them. Talking about the Christians, the church. Jesus is always up in heaven interceding for me. Do I know what Jesus is praying for me? No. That's, that's between him and God. That's for him and God to know. But if Jesus is praying for me, at a minimum, it must be some pretty good stuff. And do I know what the Holy Spirit is praying for me when I pray in tongues? No, that's for God to know. But I know that at a minimum, it must be some pretty good stuff. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, Mr. Frill, in that clip that I played, he used the word cognitively as a way that he was trying to dismiss tongues as unbiblical. He used this cognitively qualifier. And listen, I would never say that if I don't know what Jesus is praying for me cognitively, then it must not be biblical to say that Jesus is interceding for me. Well, it, he's, I know he's interceding for me because that's what the Bible says, whether I know it cognitively or not, okay? Here's how I decide if something is biblical, if it's in the Bible. So if the Bible says that tongues edifies me, then I believe that that's biblical because the Bible said it. <laughs> that's how the word biblical works. And um, and I don't know. It always kind of cracks me up when cessationists say that tongues isn't supposed to sound like incomprehensible babbling. You know, I wish they wouldn't call it babbling because that sounds disrespectful to me, to the Holy Spirit. But that's the word that a lot of anti-tongues people will use. They call it babbling or they call it gibberish. And I'm like, well, the Bible says that you're speaking mysteries in the spirit. What, what do you think that's supposed to sound like? You know, so again, someone could try to fake tongues and that might sound like babbling, but the real gift of tongues, that could sound like babbling to you too. So you just, you don't know. 
Because it's a mystery in the spirit. That's what the Bible says. Okay, let's go through his next question. Number three, what's your explanation for other religions that speak in tongues that sound quite similar to the speaking in tongues we hear in Christian circles? I think it's fair to say either those pagans are pretending or Christians are pretending or even worse, there's a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit at work in one or both of them, zoinks. So again, this seems like a really easy one to answer. It's the same way that Pharaoh's magicians would copy God's miracles. Um, Satan creates counterfeits. I mean, this goes back all the way to the book of Genesis. This is as old as the book of Genesis. Whatever God creates, Satan tries to corrupt it and create his own false copy of it. And we know that demonic powers are going to be operative in false religions. That's a very that's a very simple, common concept throughout the Bible. So um, that is an easy way to explain where anywhere where a supernatural tongue is seeming to show up in another religion. Listen, if this was an argument against tongues that other religions can fake it, well, you could use that same logic against anything that also shows up in another religion. You know, other religions claim miracles. Other religions claim healings. Other religions claim all kinds of stuff. Does that mean miracles aren't real? Does that mean evil spirits are infiltrating Christianity and any miracles that we see in Christianity? Well, that's that's just evil spirits trying to deceive us. <laughs> you know, other religions have their own holy books. Does that mean we should doubt the Bible since our religion has a holy book? So, you know, once you start using that logic to reject tongues, you say, oh, well, it shows up in other religions around the world, so we can toss it out. It might just be demons messing with us. Well, once you do that, by that same logic, you could throw out a lot of things in Scripture. You could even throw out Scripture itself. So I would say that that is bad logic, and there's a very reasonable explanation for it um, based on what we already see happening in the Bible. Okay, for his objections or whatever, questions number four and five from Todd Frill. I'm going to play them together. Number four. Spiritual gifts are just that. They are gifts. Each Christian is given at least one unique gift upon being saved. So please explain why we have tongue teaching classes and schools to teach a gift. Tongues is either a gift or it's not. It isn't something that you can learn. So if you're watching the video, and the video, if you want to look it up on YouTube, it's called My Earnest Challenge to Our Charismatic Friends. This is by Todd Frill with Wretched Radio. So anyway, he puts these two points together, like they're right beside each other. One was called the nature of spiritual gifts, and the other is that tongues can't be learned. So his question is, why are there classes offered at some churches or colleges that teach you how to speak in tongues? Todd, I agree with you on this. Okay, those those classes that try to teach that, those schools, those are in error. I have never, personally, I've never met a Pentecostal who thinks that this is how it's supposed to be done. I mean, it just, in, in my life experience, all the Pentecostals I've met, and I've met some weird ones, but I've never met any who think that tongues is something that you have to go to a, like a, a class that meets at 8 p.m. on a Monday night for two months, and that's how you learn the gift of tongues. No, I think I kind of covered this at the beginning. Tongues is something you can't generate on your own. You can't learn it in a classroom setting. This is something that the Holy Spirit endows in somebody else. And so I've, yeah, I've heard about these classes for a long time. One time, 15, 20 years ago, my sister came to me one time. She's like, she's looking online and she saw that there was this church or Christian college somewhere in Oklahoma, and they were teaching a class on how to speak in tongues. 
And she had the gift of speaking in tongues. And she's like, how can there be classes on it? Like, I didn't have a class. I just, it just happened at church camp. So <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's, there's, there's no classes that teach you how to speak in tongues in the Bible. Um, this is something that comes from the supernatural, from the Holy Spirit. And so anyway, I agree with Todd on that one. Those, those are, uh, I don't, I'm not sure what's going on with those things, but that's not genuine Pentecostalism. And then here is P- Todd Frill's last question that he has. Number six, thanks for hanging in there. Church history is certainly not on the same level as scripture, but as we look back through church history, we see kind of a spotty history of tongues. The groups that spoke in an ecstatic language, they were inevitably deemed as outside of orthodoxy further. Why did the Lord seem to wait for two thousand years to make the gifts of tongues such a prominent and prevalent gift it's worth asking these questions so his question is what you know why don't we see a lot of tongues throughout church history and to that i'd say well that's kind of like somebody in josiah's day saying why should we follow deuteronomy like we haven't followed deuteronomy for almost all of israel's history why should we start following it now the whole witness of israelite history says deuteronomy is not for today Well, of course, that would have been a ridiculous argument to toss out Deuteronomy because God's word doesn't have an expiration date attached to it. So if you read something and then you realize, oh, I haven't been doing this. My culture, my society, we haven't been doing this for all this time. That doesn't mean you just have a license to ignore it. No, you start doing it. You move forward in obedience to God's word. Okay, so just think about that logic for a minute. Why isn't, you know, well, we haven't spoken in tongues for most of church history. Why That's not our tradition. Why should we start now? Well, have you ever heard of a little thing called the Protestant Reformation that where Martin Luther looked at the Catholic Church and said, oh my goodness, we've been off base for like over a thousand years. Like we've stopped doing a bunch of stuff the Bible says to do. We've brought in a bunch of stuff the Bible didn't say to do. And he's like, we gotta, we gotta set things right. And ever since then, church has, like the church in a, in the world, the whole church, it has been on a pretty, I would say a positive trajectory to where we keep kind of going back to a more biblical basis for why we do the things we do, you know, because then you had the Lutherans and the Methodists and, and so on. And I think it, it just kept getting better and better. And so, and that, I think that brings us up to Pentecostals today. I'm going to do a series on this in the next few months about church history and talk about all this stuff. But um, anyway, yeah, if so, so, Mr. Frill, by that logic, I mean, then the Protestant Reformation was an error because then you could just look back and say, oh, well, they weren't doing all these things in the Bible for so long. Are, are they, were they just expired or was the Catholic Church in error by not following those things the Bible said? Well, we know Martin Luther was right and they were wrong. So um, again, that's what brings us to this thing of tongues. Why wasn't the gift of tongues in operation for much of church history? Well, for much of church history, they were teaching false doctrine that we weren't supposed to even try to speak in tongues. So if you have a bunch of church leaders saying, don't try to speak in tongues, then you're not going to have a lot of church members trying to speak in tongues. Um, But there was this Pentecostal rebirth, and I just believe this is just a blessing of God as the the church was trying to get back to a more um, biblical Christianity that God kept revealing more and more truths to them. And we see that in a lot of ways, not just in the charismatic movement, but that's just one of those many ways that we see that happening in church history. So that would be my response to that. Church history really doesn't matter. (laughs) Like when it comes down to it, are we going to do what the Bible says or not? 
if church if the church has been doing something wrong for two thousand years, it's the church that it's wrong that's wrong. It's not the Bible that's wrong. We got to do what the Bible says. So anyway, that I think that deals with all the objections that we had for today. I'm going to end with some questions for cessationists. Okay, I'm going to give my own questions back because there's some things I don't. Like I said, with cessationists, I think the burden of proof is on them to show me where something expired that's in the Bible. But um, here's some questions I've always wanted to ask cessationists. And so if you're one of them out there listening, you can send your feedback to crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. Here would be my questions for you. We are told by, this is number one, there's, there's like five. Number one, we're told by cessationists that the spiritual gifts have not ceased, just the sign gifts. Okay, and when they say the sign gifts, they mean tongues, interpretation, miracles, healings, casting out demons is oftentimes included in there. So my question in response to that, where does the sign gifts categorization come from? Because when I hear the phrase sign gifts, I think that that's a man-made category. I don't think scripture draws those lines. So I think that's kind of just people looking at the Bible and saying, oh, well, this one's out, this one's in, this one's out, this one's in. That's not a line that I see scripture drawing. I think they're all the spiritual gifts. And so um, that'd be my first question. And then kind of a follow-up, number two, healing is especially a problem because I think more than any of the other so-called sign gifts in the Bible, um, there's many directives throughout the New Testament to pray for the sick, to lay hands on them, to pray for their healing. And so if the sign gifts, and that would include healing, obviously, if those have expired, what exactly are we supposed to do with people when they're sick? <laughs> like, are, are we supposed to pray that God heals them, even if the gift of healings has ceased? You know, how do, how do we follow what the Bible says on all those prayers? So that'd be question two. Number three, what do we do with demon-possessed people? If we no longer have the Holy Spirit's power to cast out demons, how are we going to help the demon-possessed people out? Do we just ignore them and hope that they go away? <laughs> like, what? Are, how are we going to help them if we don't have that power anymore? So I don't think all cessationists reject casting out demons, but some of them do. And I would just be like, well, what are we supposed to do for people then? Uh, Number four, I guess I've kind of said this several times, but where is the expiration date in the Bible that's given for spiritual gifts? Because 1 Corinthians 13 ain't it. You know, this is what we always hear is that where it says in 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So they look at that part where it says, where there are tongues, they will cease. And just notice there, two things. It doesn't say that tongues have ceased. It says they will cease. So it's saying someday they'll cease. It says it'll happen when the perfect comes. But what would that be talking about? So... The cessationist interpretation is that the perfect that it's talking about right there is the New Testament, and that since the New Testament is already written, then now we don't have to worry about tongues and interpretation anymore. And so that's the perspective of the cessationist argument. But that is built on some assumptions that I would say are quite a stretch. So their first assumption is that tongues and interpretation had to do with revealing the unwritten parts of the Bible. And so that tongues and interpretation were just a way for God to relate the New Testament information that had not been written down yet. That's the first assumption. That's not even supported by anything in the Bible. The second assumption is that the perfect spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13, 
that it has to do with the New Testament. But let's just keep on reading. What does it say? It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when it talks about the perfect, when the perfect comes, is the perfect the New Testament? Well, no. I think the perfect is talking about whenever we're in heaven with Jesus, because we haven't seen him face to face. So I think that's talking about when we get to heaven. Then we're not going to need tongues anymore. Then we won't need interpretation. Then we aren't going to need prophecies, because we're going to be seeing Jesus face to face. So I think that's what it's talking about when it says when the perfect comes. It's talking about when we come into that perfect knowledge. We're not just trying, you know, right now we see through a glass darkly. We don't see Jesus clearly as we will someday in heaven. So anyway, I have never seen an expiration date given for spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and I don't think it's there in 1 Corinthians 13. So that's my next question for the cessationist. Where is it? And I'm not done. Here's one. Here's like one more, two more. I guess here, here's another one. If tongues are just an earthly language, then why stop at just two or three interpretations in a church service? Because this is a this is a common thing that cessationists say is that tongues are just earthly languages, um, speaking you know in languages that people understand down down here on earth. And so if if that's the case though, then why would we just stop at two or three interpretations in a service? which is what 1 Corinthians 14 says to do. And and think about it this way. If a missionary or if a pastor goes to another country, you know, maybe it's like a missions project, and they're preaching a sermon to the people there, they might have their sermon interpreted to the people by someone else. And so what happens is like the preacher or the missionary, they say a few sentences, and then the interpreter explains it to the crowd, and they just do that during the whole sermon. Have you ever you know, seen a video or heard a story like this where a preacher says, oh, I said two or three lines, and then the interpreter gave it to the crowd, and they just go through like that? Well, it, okay, that's a common practice for missionaries. Um, why don't cessationists have a problem with that? If, if they believe that tongues is just earthly languages, then shouldn't they be out here saying, oh, yeah, we stop at three interpretations? Well, if tongues interpretation is just earthly languages— why do, you, why do you let people go on for a whole sermon like that? So that'd be my next question. And my last one, if tongues are just earthly languages, then why would interpreting it be a spiritual gift? Okay? And this is, this is my question because many cessationists will insist that tongues only is supposed to operate the way that it did in Acts 2. Uh, and I've already explained earlier that I think Acts 2 was the initiation of that gift, but the normative use is what it talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. But anyway, they, they say that Acts 2 is supposed to be our model, all right? So if that's the case, and, and Acts 2 is, is where they gave the gospel to people who just spoke another earthly language. So if tongues is only supposed to give the gospel to someone who speaks a foreign language, then they would not need an interpreter, okay? That people in Acts 2 did not need an interpreter. So why would interpretation be a spiritual gift if the gift of tongues is just to communicate to somebody in their own language. You don't need an interpreter at that point. So those are my questions to to any cessationist out there who would be listening. And if they want to engage on this topic, you know, send your feedback to me and uh, I'd be happy to take it. Cross references podcast at gmail.com. This is going to close out my series 
on uh, the tongues for today. All right. If we get a lot of feedback, maybe we could do a fifth episode. But I think we've kind of I think we've pretty well covered it. And I'm ready to talk about something else. So, hey, thank you for tuning in to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, if you bought a Kia, you should have bought a Honda. Oh, 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 o